This episode of On Point features an interview with retired United States Army officer and current news commentator Barry McCaffrey. For his service in the military, McCaffrey was awarded three Purple Hearts, two Silver Stars, and two Distinguished Service Crosses, the second highest U.S. Army award for valor. In 2010, McCaffrey received the West Point Association of Graduates of the United States Military Academy's Distinguished Graduate Award. He also served in U.S. President Bill Clinton's cabinet as the director of the Office of National Drug Control Policy. In this episode, McCaffrey talks about his time at West Point, including relationships with classmates, being a cadet, and the mentorship gained while in attendance. He goes into his time in Vietnam and the military's recovery after the war, as well as his post-military experience working for the Clinton administration. McCaffrey also provides insight into what he thinks makes a great mentor and leader. So, please enjoy this episode between Barry McCaffrey and your hosts, Tim Shaw and Lance Dietz. Welcome to On Point. I'm Tim Shaw, class of 2004. And I'm Lance Dietz, class of 2008. And today we are joined by a very special guest, Barry McCaffrey, class of 1964. Sir, we're going to go through a bunch of different topics, but first I want to get into how you first became interested in the military and the role that your father might have played in this interest. Yeah. Well, look, I um, my dad was West Point class in 1939. And, and by the way, in my class in 1964, there were eight of us who were sons of 39. And that was sort of an unusual year, obviously. The war in Europe had just started. <clears throat> there had been a peacetime army of, you know, barely over 100,000 people. Then they got caught up in this worldwide conflict. And so dad ended up as a full colonel, chief of staff of an infantry division fighting in Italy uh, at the age of 25. And then we went on to a lifetime of, uh, of service in the army. I loved it as an army brat, uh, Europe, Panama, around the United States. And uh, then I decided well, I wanted to be a doctor. So, you know, I got early admission at Johns Hopkins. Uh, and my dad looked at me and said, uh, you look like you're 11. You act like you're 10. You're not going to Johns Hopkins at the end of your junior year. And so I went up to Phillips Andover, a, um, a uh, prep school, and terrific opportunity for me. And while I was there, I said, hey, I can't do this. I got to go back to the Army. And got, unfortunately, got an appointment. What was your West Point experience like? I remember when I was in your class uh, taking a howitzer photo and showing you bracing. Um, and so it, I think it was pretty intense. Yeah. Well, it was sort of a mixed bag. I actually loved a lot of it. I liked playing squash, boxing. <laughs> I liked getting out of there. Uh, I, actually, I remember I used to dance out the, the door of Plebe Beast Barracks because I liked the sound of the Hellcats and the <laughs> But on the other hand, it was more akin to Sparta in those days than anything else. And, you know, the standard joke was the happiest uh, time in your life at West Point uh, was when you left and saw it in your rearview mirror after graduation. Uh, there were no women. Uh, there were, uh, I think there were two exchange students. Uh, there were two uh, black cadet classmates, one who was later killed in action flying an F-4 over North Vietnam and the other one who now is a PhD in physics. So uh, when you compare it to the classes today with the richness of their experience, with the openness and, uh, of, of their educational uh, opportunities, it, it was a pretty narrow thing. But it did do duty on her country, and it told you you'd better get the job done regardless of what it requires. And I, you know, I tell people that's one of the things I got out of West Point. I visited the National Museum of the U.S. Army pretty recently, and I want to say the class of 64 visited there. And I'm curious, um, it just seems like uh, classes are very close to one another. I'm curious if that's your experience. The closest, you mean, internally, cohesion of the class. Yeah, it's astonishing. Uh, I think part of it is a class needs leadership to continue that uh, a sense of continuity and contact and reunions and uh, care in one another. And our class has been very fortunate. Uh, our first captain, Dick Chilcote, was a class leader for many, many years, basketball star, tremendous combat soldier, and then now Dan Evans. So we've had the leadership that, that helped keep us together. But, 
you know, it may also be a function of uh, we were a pre-war class who graduated and then suddenly we were involved in nonstop mayhem in, in Vietnam. A lot of us got killed. Bunches of us got uh, wounded, uh, some medically retired. And so I think the intenseness of our early experience was uh, pretty powerful. And so to this day, you know, my wife and I are about to head out out on a June um, mini reunion to Ireland. And there'll be 40 of us there. And uh, we stayed pretty close. And one of the things we talked about a few weeks ago is MacArthur came and gave his famous speech while you were a cadet. Um, I'm curious, uh, what was that experience like? Oh, it was overwhelming. You know, I, uh, MacArthur was a strategic genius, a narcissist of the first order. Uh, there, there's a mixed bag there, but he was one of the great men of our times. And one can argue, I think successfully, that he um, materially shortened World War II. And then his genius in Japan and turning them, helping turn them into a successful democracy and a world power uh, economically. But when he came up to West Point, I was a, a plebe and, you know, a bunch of wise-ass teenage boys, uh, this older man up there at the podium going to give a talk and a lot of chit-chat going on, on the floor. Uh, the first captain at the time, Jim Ellis, by the way, uh, fortunately brought his little ancient handheld tape recorder because the signal core recorder failed and got this scratchy recording of MacArthur's speech, which I've had framed on my office wall uh, since since then. Uh, but, you know, when MacArthur started speaking, the background noise slowly subsided and then we were all riveted. It was just this unbelievable, brilliant, heartfelt uh, conversation with this great man. You know, one of the, I think one of the three greatest speeches given in English, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream, and then Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. <laughs> Those are three that I've had framed and up my wall for years. Very powerful experience. Sir, just a couple of quick questions on your West Point experience. One, were you a model cadet? Were you an hours walker? What what sort of cadet were well, you? Well, let me just say this. Years later, I was uh, the rumors all around general officers are always rife on who's going where next. And uh, the rumor was out that I was likely to be the next superintendent. And uh, one of my classmates asked me, what do you think it's like? I said, once they open my cadet record, I'm not going to be the superintendent. So, um, you know, I, I was immature, a wise ass, um, and yeah, I, I didn't, until I finally got engaged, fortunately, to my current wife of 57 years, <clears throat> uh, at the end, I think of junior year or something, and, and then my grades took off, <laughs> so I sort of calmed down, but uh, I think I got a lot out of West Point. If I could do it again, I would and would be more mature. I did, you know, 10 times, I used to tell people, I did 10 times more work in graduate school in two years than I did in four years at West Point. Uh, and by the way, the system of academics at West Point now is also incredibly more effective, diverse, rich uh, offerings. That's just amazing. If I could ask one more about the West Point experience. So, um, Clearly, an amazing leadership career you've had um, in fact, Was there anyone in particular at West Point during your time there that, I don't know, shaped more than others your leadership philosophy or learning about leadership as you were, you know, getting ready to graduate? Well, you know, having been a, for, a former SOSHPI and, you know, the constant war between the academic department and the tactical department, one thing in, in retrospect that always got to me was we didn't realize what a select group, the not just the officers and the faculty, but the tactical department were. Um, you know, they were they'd all been hand selected. They were just models of integrity and diligence and <laughs> trying to develop you as a person. One of my tacks was General Thurman, later General Thurman. I stayed in contact with my entire life. His brother had been the cadet activities tactical officer. Uh, but I'd say across the board, the 
the one thing we lacked in our era, we didn't have NCOs up there, uh, which I think has been a tremendous uh, addition to leadership development and to understanding how the Army works. But no, I think the I think the models we had uh, of the officers that were teaching us and the tactical officers were remarkable. Sir, you have a very decorated Vietnam War experience, and would love to hear about it. And um, and what would you say? Uh, and it's a twofold question. Would you say we've adequately learned the lessons of Vietnam? And I know that's a heavily loaded question. Well, you know. I'm, I spend half my time reading military history since I was 10 years old and uh, putting Vietnam in that contact. No two wars are precisely alike. I mean, my, my dad, I grew up in a household where dad had fought three plus years in the Italian theater, uh, then two years to include up in the, uh, the chosen reservoir in Korea. Then he was in Vietnam for three or four years. Uh, so you know, Vietnam, I talk to these veterans groups all the time. And uh, my company, rifle company I commanded, B Company 2nd and 7th Cavalry in Vietnam, 68, 69, bunch of teenage boys. Uh, I just loved them. The first sergeant and I were the only two people over the age of 25 and RA. Uh, both of us were on our third combat tour. Both of us would be wounded for the third time commanding that company, uh, Emerson Trainer. By the way, Emerson had been a rifleman badly wounded in the same company during the Korean War in the 1st Cav Division. So, um, you know, on, on one level, you know, I used to tell people I never lost a fight in Vietnam. Uh, we, we knew exactly what we were doing, Emerson and I. We, uh, it was frightfully dangerous, close-range combat. Thank God for U.S. artillery. Thank God for attack helicopters. Thank God for the United States Air Force. Uh, but I was doing pretty well. Uh, and I, I think at the end of the day, the problem with Vietnam was political. And the politics of it were, um, you know, not really related to the South Vietnamese, <clears throat> North Vietnamese nationalism, um, their better leadership, their better integrity and commitment to winning the war. Uh, the real policy problem was that you know, we, we ended up with a pick an army, you believe, 59,000 killed in action and 303,000 wounded in action, of whom 75,000 were badly maimed. And, you know, I, so I think the problem in Vietnam was the politicians that got into it didn't know how to end it, didn't have a strategy to achieve an outcome. And, and so rather than accept the fact we were in this stalemate and grinding up tens of thousands of our young men, uh, they, they stayed in there. And the country finally said, hey, these politicians don't know what they're doing. Uh, that's what happened in Vietnam. I, you know, I spent a lot of time on NBC News denying the, you know, comparison between Vietnam and Afghanistan in particular. But there is a political uh, similarity. You know, we get in there, we we're trying to do the right thing. Uh, by the way, at a strategic level, one can argue that our stance in both Vietnam and in Afghanistan was not uh, for not. I mean, at the end of the day, it's a demonstration of our commitment uh, to our values. But painful, Vietnam was painful. It divided the country, you know. It, the divisions in the country lasted for two generations until the last of us is gone. There's still this anger among uh, those who served and those who hated the war. By the way, most of us were volunteers in Vietnam, not draftees. My company was all draftees, <laughs> but, the, uh, uh, but the country stood up to it. So I don't know. We've had some painful experiences, but that's the nature of modern life. We're not going to use nuclear weapons. There's not going to be a victory over Germany and Japan. We're trying to keep um, our values and our political and diplomatic and military objectives uh, supported. And military power is one aspect of it. We probably ought to do better with diplomatic power, with economic leverage, with covert action, uh, than we have, because 
you know, I, I give up. There's a great book, We Were Soldiers Once and Young, by Joe Galloway and this wonderful uh, <clears throat> battalion commander in the fighting in the Adrang Valley. And I, I used to give a copy of that book to all the senior people going into government. And I tell them, read the last two chapters, if I remember. It deals with notifying, I think they had 311 killed in action or something. It was the single largest loss of infantry loss since the Battle of Antietam. And the, so these last two chapters of the book deal with the notification of the families in Columbus, Georgia, taxi cab drivers knocking on the door and handing a telegram, Western Union telegram, uh, your husband, your son, uh, your brother's been killed in action. And, uh, and I, so I said, I want you to read this and understand that the army will fight. The army would have stayed in Afghanistan for another 50 flipping years. Uh, the army was doing okay. Uh, the problem was the country had gotten sick of it. So I tell people, don't use military power unless you articulate the goals you were trying to achieve and ask the American people to stay with you. And I think that's an enduring lesson of Vietnam and Afghanistan also. And, and I think it's something that, um, to mention another book that you've had uh, students like myself read in the past, Prodigal Soldiers, talks about the rebuilding of the military and um, your experience, Colin Powell's experience, and the whole Powell Doctrine, which um, you've essentially summarized uh, in, a, in a very uh, um, interesting way. I'm, I'm curious um, how much of the rebuilding of the military, uh, and rebuilding is a heavy word, but um, how much do you think you played a part in that in your generation, uh, class of 64, in going to Vietnam and then helping the military recover from Vietnam? Well, uh, rather than me, I think it's my generation. And, and it's a good question because we came out of Vietnam. It was a disaster, you know, at the end of the day. There is no separation between the Army and the country. The Army comes from the young men and women who are in that age group and their, how their families feel about military service. And, um, and by the way, of course, we had the draft in Vietnam, which made a... And when Nixon changed the draft so that it was no exemptions... Uh, started the older guys first, at, I think it was age 26. That's what ended the Vietnam War. Because all the parents said, oh my God, rather than just a kid who's drinking too much beer and screwing off in college, it's going to be my husband and the two kids and his job in General Electric as an engineer. That's my company, XO in Vietnam, was under that draft uh, solution. So you know, oh God, you know, it's, it's hard to put all this stuff in context, but, um, but let me take a new sort of direction on it. Today's military, uh, thank God for the, it's the most battle-hardened, effective combat force in the country's history, period. Uh, as a general statement, they're high school grads, no felony arrests. Uh, they, we're recruiting out of young men, the top 25% of the country, the same kids that are going to colleges. That's who we recruit. And the young women's probably the top 15%. Uh, and by God, they're fighting. They're an incredibly uh, courageous, effective uh, force. Uh, so, you know, the, the country's still producing adequate security out of their youngsters. And we ought to be grateful for that. Uh, going forward, that's the biggest challenge to U.S. national security. It's not the current state of, you know, potential Chinese invasion of Taiwan or the South China Sea or Iranian uh, nukes. It's, uh, is the country willing to stand up behind a powerful national security defense? You retired after 32 years of service and as a four-star general. I'm curious, what are a couple leadership vignettes that you have or leadership experiences that uh, you'd like to impart to our audience? Well, you know, I, I do a lot of lectures on, on leadership and try and tune it to a given audience, whether it's a business community or, you know, nonprofits or uh, moms and dads or, you know, you name it. But a couple of thoughts. Uh, there's a good argument that everything that I needed to know about leadership for the rest of my life, I learned finally as a company commander in combat. 
So it was sort of a narrow focus, but, you know, I'd have between 70 and 125 soldiers in the field, ferociously dangerous. They were all teenagers. They were all in great physical shape. Uh, they were almost all draftees, but many of them volunteered for the draft. Uh, they were great fun to be around. They had a great sense of humor about this awful life we led. Oh my God, we dug like moles to stay alive and we were malnourished and, and it was some kind of dangerous. I mean, just operating with the U.S. fire support, you know, it's like living in the impact zone at Fort Bragg. Uh, so, but there were these terrific soldiers and uh, there, there were a bunch of things you could do about it. First of all, you could be an expert at what you're doing. And that's the most important aspect of leadership. Do the soldiers say, you know, the last time she told us to do something, it turned out real good. I guess we ought to do it again, follow her instructions. And first sergeant and I actually knew what we were doing. We were both on our third combat tours. The other thing we do is we have a plan, a simple plan. And we'd say, here's the plan for today. And all the lieutenants and platoon sergeants would sit around in a circle and I'd go through the plan on the map. Here's what we're doing. And the other thing I'd say, you know, uh, I'm a risk minimization guy. So if hard work or cunning can reduce the risk, then we're doing that. You know, I used to tell people everybody had gloves because we dug all the time. Uh, so there are a bunch of, and, and by the way, the final one, once you give the instructions, the first sergeant and my company CP of 10, 12, 13 people, artillery at Ford team, Air Force, you name it. But I'd be up there with the with the lead two platoons in the fight. So if you're the commander, you gotta go where the action is. Not to take charge of it necessarily, but to be in the middle of the thing as it unfolds. Now change that to four-star general theater commander. All those leadership lessons still apply. The only difference is it may take 15 years to accomplish your plan as a theater or senior flag officer in the Pentagon. You're putting together technology and matching it with new doctrines and understanding who the adversaries might be. Uh, you know, I have to tell people as a, as a uh, battalion or company commander, I only cared about the ops guy and the intel guy. That's it. And then as a division commander, I only cared about the logistics guy and the communications guy, and not the rest of it. And as a theater commander, I only cared about my diplomatic liaison officer than the PAO and the legal officer. <laughs> so you got different tools, but basically it's the time it takes to implement plans goes up as you get into a more complex environment. But I swear, if you're a great company commander, you understand the fundamentals of how to run an organization of 65,000 people, which I did as Joint Forces Commander in Latin America. And let's talk about your post-military experience, because you continue to serve the government after uh, serving 32 years in the military. And um, we'd love to hear about your experience in the uh, White House. Yeah, well... It's interesting. During the Clinton administration, Al Gore was vice president and uh, the uh, drug policy director's position, uh, the incumbent, a brilliant man, been police chief in New York City, PhD in criminology, written a bunch of books, a wonderful man, got disgusted with the way politically he was being treated by both the Democrats and the Republicans, and he quit on him. And it was a year out from the Clinton re-election campaign. So it was one of a handful of issues that were going to knock Clinton out of office. <clears throat> and I was a joint commander. So joint commanders all have direct interface with the president of the United States. I mean, you can pick up a phone and call him on the, on the red line from your plane if you had to. And uh, so they all knew who I was. <laughs> and they said, well, you know, we can either get a doctor, we can get a police chief, we can get an uh, unlikely uh, expert on addiction we can get some uh, pseudo-war hero, McCaffrey. And so they wanted me to take the job, and I told them no. And I outlined in a 
two or three page essay how they could do better at dealing with the drug issue. And I gave them the names of three people that I thought were super qualified. <laughs> and then I talked to my dad, retired three-star general, and he said, hey, the president asked you to do something, shut up and do it. <laughs> That's how I became the drug policy director. And uh, it was very interesting. Uh, it was the most important issue I ever dealt with. Uh, it had gigantic healthcare, uh, criminal justice, international policy research uh, aspects to it. Uh, to some extent, I was very well qualified for it uh, because, you know, it's dealing with Congress, dealing with the press, <clears throat> interagency coordination. I'd done all that. And then finally, it was uh, an issue that, you know, when I was a, when I graduated from West Point, I'd never seen anybody using drugs. Yeah, I knew there was some jazz musician in New Orleans who might be doing cocaine, but I'd never seen any of it. And then we got engulfed in it during the uh, aftermath, mostly the Vietnam War, the latter years. And it, it partially destroyed us. And the worst drug of all, by the way, it was all poly drug abuse, was alcohol. People stumbling around, throwing up on their shoes, sexual assaults, assault and battery. You know, it was a mess. We worked our way out of it. Uh, it took us 10 years. Uh, we started prevention programs, treatment programs, education programs. So I'd been through a lot of that as a major in Germany. And my heart was in it. And we did a lot of good for the situation. Um, but there I was right in the Clinton cabinet and had a great deal of respect for him. <clears throat> Brilliant man, did his homework, uh, uh, basically didn't uh, have a drug problem himself. All this, you know, I smoked dope, but I didn't inhale. He actually was a good dad and uh, and understood the dysfunction of drug abuse. What I find fascinating is uh, we talked about the Vietnam War divide, but you and him were on two sides of the Vietnam War. Um, you going and serving multiple times, getting wounded. Uh, he did not. And, and that um, caused... Uh, when he ran for office, uh, a lot of divide. And it's fascinating how well you two work together. Well, you know, you, you almost had to be there in the, in the early 70s. The abhorrence of the Vietnam War by a substantial part of the population and the politicians. You know, it's a miracle to me that kids responded to the draft and they did come serve and fight and got killed or wounded. Uh, and Clinton got got caught up in that whole thing. And so his, uh, it was a blot on his record. I always tell people Clinton had <clears throat> joined the Coast Guard Reserve when he got back from Oxford. Uh, he probably have his, and hadn't been wrapped up in Monica Lewinsky stuff, uh, he'd probably have his face on Mount Rushmore. He was a tremendous president. You know, we did, the economy did well. We stayed out of foreign stupid wars. I mean, he was actually, he had tremendous compassion and empathy for the American people. And that was genuine. You know, he was a politician. I understand that. He was, they weren't corrupt people either. I mean, they needed money for political purposes, but uh, <clears throat> I thought he was terrific and uh, it didn't go very well. Uh, but, you know, when he uh, first came in office, I was a Special Assistant General Colin Powell, the chairman of JCS, who I, one of the greatest men I ever met in my life, another subject of discussion. <clears throat> and um, they had invited me to be the speaker at the Vietnam Memorial that year, Jan Scruggs. And uh, I said, yeah, I'd do it. And, uh, and then General Powell said, wait a minute. He said, uh, this is important. Clinton had just taken office, been sworn in. Uh, we've got to get uh, our president down there and endorse him as the armed forces. So I had some minor role. I introduced Powell or something, and General Powell stood up there and introduced the, uh, Clinton, who was the speaker. When he did, in the background, there were uh, five, ten thousand people there. A lot of the motorcycle gangs, many of whom really weren't veterans, turned their back on Clinton. Uh, but General Powell said it's important for us to signal that whoever the American people elect, we're going to support. And so I think a lot of the criticism of Clinton, by the way, that was <clears throat> labeled at him over his behavior during the Vietnam era was, was hypocritical. 
interesting contrast, General Wes Clark, a uh, friend of mine, retired four-star, SACUR, brilliant man, Rhodes Scholar also. So Wes, who's also from Little Rock, Arkansas, <laughs> goes to Oxford, has a brilliant, distinguished uh, uh, academic record at Oxford, and then demands to go directly to Vietnam, where he's a recon platoon leader and gets almost killed in action, uh, badly wounded. So young people, 20, 25, trying to sort out what to do during that era. Uh, I hold nothing against uh, politicians who haven't served, although I want to see politicians of character. So amazing Amazing discussion right now. Um, I wanted to dive in a little bit to some of the leadership lessons that span your career um, in the military, in the government, and in the civilian world. And and the first one, I'm just curious, like, I guess when you were transitioning out of the military, was there anything in particular from a leadership perspective that was surprising to you, um, more of a challenge, or maybe something you had to almost like relearn as it related to managing teams in the government or civilian sectors? Well, that's a great question, you know, because clearly the, the central mantra of leadership is it's situational. <laughs> Who am I? What's my position? What's the nature of this organization? What are they trying to achieve? So uh, I, I was a keynote speaker one year at the American Red Cross of incredibly wonderful organization. And uh, the, the president who introduced me said, you know, McCaffrey's also from the other volunteer organization in this country. But there's a big difference between <laughs> running the military and then the American Red Cross with its chapter organizations and decentralization and giant board of directors and on and on. So there are differences, no question. Um, and, you know, I've been on a bunch of boards now, for-profit companies, 25,000 employees, uh, <clears throat> organizations of design engineering with the, all of our employees, five, 6,000 employees are brilliant young people. Uh, interestingly enough, on a board of directors and board of advisors, I've never heard a dishonest statement one time. You know, a lot of discussions on uh, how we're going to comply with laws, regulations, ethics. Uh, but basically, I've never heard a board talk about, you know, let's flim-flam our clients, the customers, the regulators, et cetera. Very high integrity, high IQ people. Uh, I've had a lot of fun dealing with American business, and I'm still engaged in, in two companies that are uh, very fine companies. Now, having said that, the one limitation I coach, I give an hour class to people, senior people leaving the armed forces if they want it. And uh, one of the things I tell them is you don't understand the management of money, which is central, the budget, budget execution. This is semi-tongue in cheek, but, you know, as a joint commander, somebody come in and say, sir, we, we don't have enough money to do this. Uh, we're $25 million short in that account. And I'd say, $25 million? Don't talk to me about stuff like that. Go get some more money. <laughs> so, you know, if you're in a business, with one of the businesses I'm with now has, uh, I guess we got a thousand employees. And we're, but that CEO and the CFO, they better, better stay within the boundaries, like flying a plane. You can't hit the ground one time during the flight. Uh, so, you know, when I, one of the things I did when I got out of government, I went up and signed up at Harvard Business School for making corporate boards work. I think it was five days. It was the best thing I ever did. I'm still on, I'm on an audit committee again. Oh my God, financially literate. But after 15 years, I can, you know, read the balance sheet and all the bouncing balls. So I think the only thing that's different is mostly military officers, I'm not talking the R&D community or the Pentagon who has to manage this, but as operators, money wasn't the central driving focus. That's different in civilian business, and it should be. No, that's amazing. In, in terms of kind of who you look to now, um, 
from a leadership perspective as you continue or or who you did as you were continue to refine your your leadership expertise and just management kind of outside of the military um i'm curious kind of like how you i guess continued to reflect on how you were doing things or or who you surrounded yourself with um in order to either get advice or mentorship or otherwise just almost sort of um Make sure you're still progressing in terms of a leadership journey, although you have had incredible success up to that point already. Well, you always, you know, there's no question you have to continue to grow. You have to listen to what people are, are really up to. It, my business experience has been, because uh, I do believe the primary leverage tool one has in any leadership uh, experience is being an expert. Do you know what you're talking about? Do you have a uh, great depth of background? And, and uh, there's, there's a countervailing school of thought that says, you know, come on, it doesn't matter if we're manufacturing cars or perfume or whatever. It's all just uh, financial metrics and uh, keeping the, your board of directors okay with you. But I don't believe that. I think the more you know, if you've had a lifetime dealing with the automotive industry, you got to leg up on people that don't. And so a challenge... <clears throat> to me has always been if you if you get outside your area of expertise uh that board of directors on Theranos as an example she's now on trial for blatant fraud i guess i finally con- convicted her um and uh it, it was just astonishing to me the great men of our time two secretaries of state uh one or two secretaries of defense uh all of them in there you know i was on uh, one board similar to that, where it was uh, golf, uh, $5,000 courses of wine at the executive board uh, dinner the night before, uh, and rotund explanations by the CEO. Uh, that's a failure of leadership. You know, board of directors ought to be held responsible uh, for not asking questions. Uh, Enron was another example, you know. Come on, you go home and the first two years, I'm thinking one one star general in particular is on that board. You come home and tell your wife, you know, we don't have uh, energy production facilities. We don't have pipelines. We don't have this. But I'm making $10 million a year. I must really be smart. <laughs> you know, maybe uh, you're not following uh, what's going on in the company. So uh, civilian leadership does demand expertise, not just generalist. Um uh, and I think the the other thing that that strikes me and as a difference in in leadership in civilian businesses is you don't have an engine that develops your leaders for you. You know, I was a I lost my G three in Desert Storm just before the war started. I got promoted or something, and our chief of staff, excuse me, and I ended up with John Van Alstine, retired as a three star general, one of my one of the finest men I ever met in my life. But um, I asked for one of two or three people to be considered. And they gave me a slate of three. And then the army chief called me and said, take Van Alstine. You're going to like him. Here's why. But the military, honest to God, if if your uh, G3 drops dead at midnight, it's 8 a.m. in the morning, they'll give you three candidates who are perfectly qualified. And if, by the way, if they didn't work out for some reason, you can throw them back in a pile and they'll give you a new one. Not so in civilian life. And in the military, you know, I tell people I'm an average run-of-the-mill four-star general, and I had five and a half years of postgraduate education. Civilian graduate school, Army War College, Leavenworth, uh, language training in French, language training. I mean, you name it. Five and a half years of thing. Well, civilian business can't do that. You know, I I used to fight on the board to send people to Stanford Business School for the summer session. Uh, so, and and getting people to uh, exposure to new jobs means you got to move them around the com- company and move them around the country or the globe to develop your leaders yourself. And you got to do it. You can't put this talent on ice for two years of graduate school. So I think that one of the differences I've encountered in civilian life is uh, leadership development is much more of a challenge. The military has an engine 
that's taking bright, capable people, selecting them for promotion, selecting them for schooling, and that doesn't go on almost anywhere else. Let's get into our next segment, the SOP or Standard Operating Procedure. A common theme with this podcast is the adage of, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Who are some mentors that have helped you along this journey? And I know you've mentioned some in the past in class and also uh, over calls like uh, Colin Powell, but would love to hear um, about maybe his mentorship of you and, and any others. Well, General Powell is a sort of a unique uh, figure in my life. I worked for him twice in two different jobs. And <laughs> you know, I used to say I was Grant's captain to Powell. Uh, I was another entry officer. He, you know, he knew I looked up to him as an older brother in many ways. And, uh, you know, when I was a, the assistant to the chairman of the three-star general's job, I'd, every day I'd be in there in the afternoon with the vice chairman, the special uh, me and maybe one of the three star and we'd uh, we'd have a hour session and then I'd be his note taker at secretary of defense sessions and you know I'd uh, I'd be in lieu of him I'd accompany the president of the secretary of defense or state on foreign uh, uh, missions so it was a pretty intense experience and uh, and uh, Powell was was very interesting person in so many ways. He was incredibly talented, but set that aside because there's a lot of talent out there. And he was an incredibly hard worker and set that aside because a lot of hard workers. Uh, but one thing that was different on Powell was he never forgot who actually makes things work. And that's the frontline workers. You know, if you want to understand how the organization, a division in the Army is doing, go spend a day with three different companies in three different parts of the division, and you'll understand what's really going on. Uh, not from the briefings at the two-star level, but from personally observing. I used to be in and out of uh, Afghanistan and Iraq during the war. Normally, the CENTCOM commander or SACU or somebody would send me over there as a civilian analyst. And I, I then I'd come back and I'd write these reports that would go viral, and they were smashing insights. And I tell people, the reason they, I, I know what's going on in these countries is I get I won't let any uh, liaison officer come with me. I, I'd have a helicopter, my own security thing, but I'd go talk to battalion commanders. And the battalion commanders would say, here's what I see. Here's what I see going on around here. And they're just too young to be sneaky. You know, but brigade command and on up, they start getting the drift on what's acceptable and what the thing. But the tank commander just tell you what's going on. I have session with the company commander. So Powell never forgot that. Uh, as, as an example, we used to have to guard his time. If you asked him to promote somebody or pin a medal on somebody leaving the joint staff, uh, it was an investment in his time because he'd spend 15, 20 minutes reading the bios, prepping himself. When he walked in the room, he'd know mother's name and the three kids and that sort of thing. So when he left the Pentagon, retired as the most popular single figure in American public life, the last week he was in office, He every day he'd spend like two hours at noon, he'd go down to this public place where we honored people in the Pentagon flags and stuff. And he'd say, anyone who wants a photo with me I'll uh, I'll give you get a photo taken with you, and then I'll autograph it and send it to you. And so there's been a line of 400 people out there that was secretaries and Air Force majors and things like that. So Powell had a tremendous sense of understanding. You got to set the conditions so that the frontline people can achieve their purpose, without which all the rest of it's flimflam. Um, and plus, he was, uh, you know, he's an incredibly kind person also, very demanding, but he's a very kind person. So, but, you know, one of the things that helped me, and in, 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 uh, certainly in the Army, but in civilian life, uh, Vice President Gore asked me after I'd been in civilian government for like three years, uh, what's the difference between a four-star general and being a cabinet officer in the administration? I'd say the big change is there's no sergeants out here. And this place is screwed up. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of the influence on me were senior NCOs. 
my division command sergeant major general randolph, uh, randolph i helped barry in oklahoma uh you know my brigade sergeant major went on to be sergeant major of the army an incredible human being uh, the, the my first sergeant in the dominican republic uh b uh b company second and 325 airborne uh who sat me down and gave me an ethic lesson. There was a lot of nonsense going on with, you know, appropriating civilian stuff. And he said, Lieutenant, uh, don't you ever do anything here on this deployment that you can't tell your dad about. <laughs> so I've had a lot of influence from senior NCOs. And uh, and that that's done me uh, a lot of good in shaping my understanding of how to get people to do something. But, you know, at the end of the day, the military, uh, we had a wonderful uh, General Cavazos, who I mean, you may not know his name. He retired as a four-star uh, force comm commander. He was the most decorated soldier in the Korean War, a poor Mexican kid on the King Ranch. Uh, and we just loved him. This is the finest soldier I ever met in my life. And... Uh, he also had a great impact on all of us. Uh, I was on part of the high technology light division experimental unit. It was really a lot of fun. It was, we did a lot of good for the Army, bringing in parallel technologies off the civilian side of the house. But he'd always come out there and ask us. He said, you know, okay, I hear all this stuff you're doing. <clears throat> but at the end of the day, the army boils down to 40 scared teenagers on a roadblock someplace. Uh, and there's a bunch of T-72s grinding their way down a dirt road. And he'd say, I want to know who's going to pull the trigger, you know, get you back to uh, understanding the fundamentals of who uh, makes things happen. So... A lot, of, a lot of mentorship around the military. I'm always uneasy about that word, by the way, mentorship. I always used to tell people that uh, mentorship means the battalion commander is supposed to look down two levels and develop and shape his leaders, his or her leaders. And, you know, the division commander is supposed to be developing battalion commanders and uh, rather than some nuanced personal relationship things. Part of your job is if you're in charge of stuff. I'm oversimplifying it, but I want to recap some notes I wrote about General Powell. You said he was talented, but a lot of people have talent. Uh, he was a hard worker, but a lot of people um, uh, work hard. Um, he knew uh, who made things work. He was kind to people. He was prepared. He set, uh, he set conditions um, for success. And so I think... All those things, a lot of people um, can do one of them, but not uh, not a lot of people can do all of them uh, well. And so that's really interesting. And also what you said about NCOs is, is interesting because it echoes what you said earlier about the value of NCOs at West Point now. Um, the last question I have in my segment of standard operating procedures are is, what are some of your core habits or routines that keep uh, you, that you keep near and dear to your heart that have helped make you a successful leader or better person? No, I, I think probably the... First thing I'd say is uh, that, you know, if you stay in a line of development, which I did by accident or by the Army uh, helping me do it, uh, I was always in a developmental process where when I got to the next level up, I actually was incredibly well prepared to understand and to do it. And, you know, if you'd grabbed me as a, a full colonel and told me I was in charge of uh, developing the next technology for Army helicopters, uh, I probably would have, first thing I would have done was found experts on Army helicopters and tried listening to them intently, which is always a good thing to do. But so I think, uh, you know, trying to, to develop yourself and have a sense that uh, one thing builds upon another and creates success when, you, when you're an expert and you know what you're talking about. That's one thing. I think the other one is hard work. Uh, you know, 
I was at uh, Leadership Week at Duke University's MBA program, and uh, you know, so I give a lecture, and it was all always well and good. And then afterward, there my fifty of them wanted to have a separate seminar with me. By the way, half of them are former military officers, which very interested me. I love graduate students, particularly if they're paying their own bill. <laughs> I don't like undergraduates who are dilettantes and goofing around and eyeing each other as potential dates. So. So I'm in this graduate seminar, and, and I <clears throat> realized that um, they wanted me to give them the secret to success, <laughs> and mostly in business. So they were impressed by the boards I was on, that sort of thing. So I said, you know, it's sort of a takeoff on something we discussed earlier. and said, you know, it, it's true that being smart, uh, not being stupid helps. Because, you know, you got to worry about the right things. And the, if, if you're not very bright, you're going to worry about everything. So it really helps to not be stupid. And then it helps to be in good physical health for sure. Uh, and it helps to not have an alcohol program problem. And, uh, you know, it, it helps to be educated. You know, there's no question if you're a West Point grad or a Chicago Booth School or something, you've been pre-selected for a program and developed by them also. All that's good. But at the end of the day, <laughs> you know, in, your, your future is never in the hands of, of, of your people that are way above you. So you're a new hire at J.P. Morgan. The CEO of J.P. Morgan may know who you are and may say nice things about you, but he's irrelevant to your future. What's relevant to your future is <clears throat> uh, it's Friday night. Uh, we get an emergency problem that's come up in, uh, in our clients in the Middle East. Somebody's got to be there Monday morning with a presentation to address the problem. Are you the person that says, hey, I'd like to be part of that, and I'll order pizza tonight, and let's jump on it right now? And over time, when your peers and the people slightly ahead of you in the organization say, you know, you can count on this lass uh, to be there when we need her. <laughs> I had one foreign service officer work for me, Janet Chris, to this day I admire. Uh, she was my age. She was my polad in, in uh, Latin America. She was an expert in Latin America. But when she got there, <laughs> you know, every time we'd have a crisis and it'd be one o'clock in the morning, we'd be trying to sort out what we're going to do about it. She was at the table. So I tell people, you want the magic of, of success? Be a hard worker. That's great, sir. I feel I feel like you answered um, our last question here in in the final segment of the podcast, which is called "Giving Back," um, and and it's very core to this podcast. And it's a question around what advice would you have to any young veteran leaders um, as they're starting their career, either in the military or in the civilian world. And, and I feel like this whole podcast was, was that, uh, you know, piece of advice, but any final, I guess, summary, uh, pieces of advice for s someone new in their career, um, who's aspiring to be a, a great leader. Well, probably a bunch of things. First of all, have fun, you know, <laughs> the, I, I had a wonderful XO when I was at J5, the JCS and uh, hardworking, industrious, sober-minded individual, very smart. And uh, I, it was a Friday afternoon, and uh, uh, in came a request from the interagency process. Somebody's got to be in Moscow on Monday or Tuesday. Uh, we're, you're going with the State Department ambassador. We want you to go. Uh, and I, so I, I was crashing on it, getting ready to put together this trip and the briefings. And my exo came in, he said, Oh, he said, this is a disaster. He said, we had 43 things planned for you. You're going to be gone for six days. Uh, you're throwing the whole thing off balance. I say, hey, this is what we do. <laughs> we go to Moscow on short notice and deal with these people. So, you know, you got to have a sense of, of some sense of joy about what you're doing and what you're trying to help with. And it's not just money. It's just, you know, a sense of moving things along and being a trusted member of the team. One of your statements, you know, you can go fast and alone or you can go together more slowly. 
this is team sports. Almost everything that's going on. So, uh, you know, and and uh, when you're a senior guy and you're looking at the people out there, you're really looking for people who have integrity and good judgment and heart, a sense of work, and also say, no, this is a lot of fun. This is I chose to do this. I work for a Navy four-star, Jim Hogg, who is really a wonderful man. He was talking about there was a bunch of studies going on about are we sending our ships to sea too much and they're not getting to see their families. And by the way, the Navy is a more stressed institution by far than the U.S. Army. And it's just astonishing how arduous it is, the life at sea. But uh, Admiral Hogg told me, he said, you know, Barry said, I always tell these guys, look, this is the Navy. And so we get on ships and go to sea in the Navy. And if you don't like that, you shouldn't be in the Navy. So again, back to the, uh, the central question is, you know, have a sense of joy and pride that you're part of a company, or if you're lucky, you're part of the armed forces, or you've been hand-selected to be part of the uh, diplomatic service or the CIA, or or you're working. I, I Some of the most wonderful people I run into are running drug rehabilitation clinics for, you know, $50,000 a year, uh, many of them in recovery. Uh, but there's a sense of joy in what they do and commitment. So that may be part of it. Look, there's a lot of fun things out there in life. I got six grandsons and it fills me with joy seeing them engage with opportunity. And that's my advice to you. That's fantastic. Last thing before we wrap here, um, you have a prolific Twitter following. Uh, you have a blue check um, and, and you're tweeting pretty often, which is incredible. I mean, I'd love to hear just a little bit about that um, and your thoughts there. Well, you know, I, I, I resisted all the social media for a long time. I, I was on an advisory board for a huge public relations firm and they wanted me to do tweeting and they showed me the chairman of JCS to do it. And I said, I don't have anything to do with it. So NBC encouraged me to do it. <clears throat> I failed at Facebook. I'm not using Facebook, but LinkedIn and Twitter uh, I am engaged with. And the Twitter's turned out to be a pretty interesting aspect of, uh, of getting a message out there you think is useful. I think I follow 112 people. So I follow people who have embedded video and articles that I want to be sure I read. You know, whether it's Peggy Noonan or George Will or uh, the, some of the NBC news anchors, Andrea Mitchell and Brian Williams. And so I follow people who are writing or presenting information who I can trust or have a different perspective. And it's an astonishing way to stay up with things. Then I'm, um, I'm tweeting out viewpoints. And frequently, I take one of the people I trust and send their article, their interview out, and add my own thoughts on it. Because I think uh, being able to proliferate good thinking is helpful. And then finally, as I mentioned earlier, before we start talking, I, I think I blocked a thousand people. The Twitterverse, well, the downside of it is some of the most foul, crazed, ignorant people in the world uh, have a platform to use the F-bomb and, and uh, denigrate uh, things. So I just block people immediately when I see that sort of thing. So I, I think it's been a useful aspect to it. One tweet had like 9 million readers. Uh, now, part of the limitation is the whole notion of clickbait. You know, uh, I, I, I'm very much involved in following Latin America. So I like writing for inter-American dialogue. And I'll write a 500-word short essay on what Central America or Chile or whatever and 15 people will read it. So <laughs> it's not necessarily a uh, predictable tool to disseminate information, but I'm happy to be part of it. I learn a lot off, off Twitter to be blunt and LinkedIn. Well, sir, that's all we have time for. This was incredible. Thank you so much for 
for carving some time out of your day. Um, I feel like we could have gone for another two or three hours here and, and gone a bit deeper on a lot of different things, but this has been fantastic. Before Tim and I let you go, any final things you'd like to share with the audience? Uh, no, very comprehensive. Lance, Tim, thanks very much for allowing me the opportunity to speak to these issues. I wish you luck. Uh, Tim, it was great having you as a student and now seeing, boom, you've turned into uh, such a successful and engaged person. So both of you, thanks for what you're doing. I do want to say one thing. Um, and uh, General McCaffrey, very humble, but um, it, it, we would be remiss to not say this. He received two distinguished crosses, two silver stars, three purple hearts, and a CIB. Uh, thank you, sir, so much for your service. Good to be with both of you. Thank you for listening to On Point. Please take a moment to rate and review the show wherever you're listening. It really helps us out. We'll see you in the next episode.